As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Total Soccer Show Weekend Review! Barcelona couldn't get no satisfaction when Real Madrid had their very own Jumping Jack Flashman. The Classico was won by two Jude Bellingham goals. He's only 20 and it's only rock and roll. On Sunday, we learned that Manchester is blue and Ten Hag's end at United might be coming into view. While City are led by their Norwegian messiah, the Reds are somehow stuck with Evans and Maguire. (laughs) Elsewhere, Chelsea were booed (laughs) off the field. Ajax's problems haven't healed. FC Cincinnati have MLS glory on the cards. And Harry Kane spank one in from 50 yards. My name's Ryan Bailey. Joining me today, we have a TSS triumvirate led in part by Mr. Joseph Lowry. Hello, Joseph. Hello, Ryan. That was exceptional, as always. You rhyming Messiah and Harry Maguire was not something that I had on my bingo card for the day, but I am so glad it happened. Ryan, well done. Thank you very much, Joe. It was a tricky one today, because uh, to, to give you a peek behind the curtain, rhymezone.com was down today, mm. so I had to do it on my own. I had wow. no help. Wow, wow, it's like when, when your power goes out and all of a sudden you think, well, wait, I'm not equipped for this in any way whatsoever, except you were <laughs> equipped for it, Ryan. You are the survivor. I'm so proud of you. Well done. I'm proud of you too, Joe. Thank you very much. Joining us from South Dakota today, a different state for Joe Lowry. Exciting. Yes. Exciting. Yes. I'm, I'm yeah. doing one episode of TSS from each U.S. state. Um, so I nice. decided South Dakota would be number two on the list. I've actually done, I've already done California, Minnesota, South Dakota, and Arizona. So I've done four, only 46 to go. I think I'm making great wow. progress. You get the whole song done by uh, in a couple oh, and, of weeks. Oh, and Washington. And oh, man, I've done more than I think I have. Never mind. New no York? one really cares about this. New York. Last year. I've done at least yeah. like seven or eight states, actually. I am, I truly am making great progress. Look at you, Joe. Look wow. at you. Fantastic. Joe, is South Dakota the one with the presidents in the mountain or is yes. that North Dakota? Yes, it is. It's it's South Excellent. Dakota. I've still never seen them. Um, but rumor has it that the giant presidents are in a mountain somewhere near where I am. Very good. Congratulations on that. I hope you Thank one you. day get to see the giant faces on the mountain, Joe. Joining us also, we have Mr. Graham Ruthven. Hello, Graham. How are you? I am well, Ryan Bailey. I'm not in a different state today. I am still under the uh, under the pillow fort. I don't yep. get to leave the house unless it's a Saturday and I get to visit random Scottish football lower league stadiums with rave music. There you go. So you're just in a state of tiredness rather than any kind of different state. <laughs> yeah, that's, that the state. Well, that's the state I've been in for the last four years since <laughs> uh, I had the child. Yeah, true. Excellent stuff, Graham. Glad to hear it. Uh, Taylor Rockwell, by the way, not with us on this episode. He's a bit under the weather today. Why, why is it under the weather? Why, why does that mean you're ill, by the way? I don't quite understand that as an idiot. Mm, I blame isn't everyone under weather? the weather. Well, yeah, yeah. Weather's above yeah. us all, Joe. It's yeah, above us I'm, all. <laughs> I I personally am under the weather more than most living in Scotland, but yeah, I'm not really I'm not really sure. I don't get it, Ryan. All right, all right. Well, uh, listener, if you know that, let us know. By the way, patreon.com slash Total Soccer Show. If you'd like to hear our bonus content and if you'd like to support Total Soccer Show in that manner, we would appreciate it. We've got bonus uh, episodes there, bonus videos, and access to our Discord where all the cool kids are hanging out, plus us four. Um, (laughs) Taylor Rockwell, not here. Uh, Big big Taylor news over the weekend, Graham. I don't know if you caught this. Taylor Swift is not 
buying Notts County. That was a headline on BBC Sport this weekend, that Taylor Swift is not buying a club. Uh, she's not buying any... I mean, you could replace Notts yeah, County with any so other... So I, I have zero context for the story. I missed this <laughs> entirely. Did the BBC also write a story about how she wasn't buying all the, all, all the other, like, 41 Correct. EFL yep. clubs? She is not buying Phoenix Rising also. I'm going to write that one later today, Joe. <laughs> uh, she is apparently not buying the world's oldest football league club. They issued a statement and says, as uh, we are sorry to disappoint the Swifties in our fan base, we're going to have to shake this story off. She's got a song called Shake It Off. It's amazing. Wow, they did really well there. Uh, there's certainly no bad blood. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it goes on, Joe. There's certainly no bad blood between ourselves and Taylor, oh. but it's such an exciting time for us in the club. She surely couldn't have believed we would relinquish our control. Okay, so that's um, some Taylor Swift news for you there. SEO I, I would be, us, I would be so much more inclined to give that like a, a laugh and and a well done to Knotts County and their PR department if this had happened like a month ago. I feel mm. like everybody was hopping on board the let's drop as many Taylor Swift lyrics or, or song titles as we can, and we did it. Like I, I'm all about that. Except I feel like the wave is sort of passed on that now that the Travis Kelsey thing has become the norm. Mm. So yeah. I, I think timing wise, they're they're behind the times. At least at least they were a little bit more polite than they were to Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhenney, who DM'd them back saying you can what's it? You can shove your documentary up your backside or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful uh. stuff indeed. Well, Taylor Swift uh, not buying a League Two club in our wildest dreams. Jim. Uh, another one. Uh, Did another one there. Uh, mm. Another update uh, before we get into the soccer action that just dropped on Monday morning. Luis Rubiales has been banned by FIFA, the former Spanish Football Federation president, that is, uh, from all soccer activity for three years after his uh, infamous kiss of Ginny Amoso at the World Cup final. He's been punished for a breach of Article 13 of the FIFA disciplinary code. Uh, Rubiales has since argued, of course, that the kiss was consensual. Sure. Um, Amoso also made her retri- triumphant return to Spain uh, over the weekend, coming on as a sub against Italy to score the winning goal in a 1-0 victory against Italy in the Nations League. So a little bit of a update on that World Cup story, Joe. Good to hear. Yeah, good to hear. The only thing I can think of is probably not long enough and not just related to the kiss, but related to, for me, to be honest, like so much even more to all the other things that have happened that have come out over time about the problems in the Spanish Football Federation. And that's not unique to them, by the way, but these are some of the things that we know about now. The fact that Luis Rubiales can come back and work in this sport at some point doesn't feel right. And the fact that Jorge Vilda is now the coach of Morocco doesn't feel right to me. So, again, I think this is much broader than that one incident that you referenced rightly, Ryan, but in in some ways still sort of a frustrating temporary end to that saga. In. Indeed. All right, we'll keep an eye on that one as it develops. Uh, let's keep our attention in Spain. Now, of course, the big game this weekend, La Liga's Clasico. La Liga's Clasico? It's just El Clasico. Let's call it that. Barcelona 1, Real Madrid 2, Jude Bellingham with a brace in this one. A stunning equaliser. And then a Jude Bellingham special, a late winner. His first Clasico went pretty well. This one happening, Graham, in front of the Rolling Stones, Mick yeah. and Ron, in the house. Um, <laughs> obviously, because Barcelona, sponsored by Spotify, they had the uh, Rolling Stones logo on their shirts. Now, the the uh, the TIFO, Graham, there was a Rolling Stones TIFO at this game before the game happened. I, I'm, I'm struggling with this because it's cool, but also incredibly uncool at the same time. It's oh. possible to be those two things, right? Yeah, I mean, the TIFO made me physically ill. I mean, TIFOs are, are meant to be like illustrations of fan culture and, and kind of an organic thing. So, of course, Barcelona have found a way to essentially turn it into a, a big billboard. But yeah, I, yeah. I presume Barca and Ro- the Rolling Stones partnered up because they're both irrelevant, who haven't, uh, both of them haven't really been good in a long time. Hey, oh, let's get to that shortly, shall we? Um, yeah, using TIFO for corporate things is is cringy, I suppose, is the, is the headline there, even if it is. Uh, a rock band of 80-year-olds. Uh, Real Madrid painting it white. That pun courtesy of Graham Rutherland's Soccer Dispatch newsletter available wherever <laughs> internet is sold. Listener, if you want to check that one out. But uh, Real Madrid going top of La Liga on goal difference uh, after this game. It was an interesting one, Graham. Barcelona on top for the first half, arguably most of the game. But then Real Madrid basically closed it out strong, is, uh, is how I'd say. Yeah, Real Madrid did the Real Madrid thing. This is what they do in matches. And for a lot of this game, Barcelona did the Barcelona thing as well. The, the first Clasico of the season always feels important in terms of how it can set the tone for the, the rest of the season. And that was certainly the case here because there was just one point between the two teams before kickoff. That gap is now four points, which isn't unassailable, of course, but it does establish Real Madrid as the team being chased this season in La Liga. But in the first half, 
it was Real Madrid doing a lot of the chasing. I thought Barcelona started the match very, very well. They scored after six minutes. It was a little bit fortunate how the goal happened. There were a couple of ricochets and Ukraine Gundogan just reacts quickest inside the box. But nonetheless, their, their performance in the first half was, was good. And Real Madrid were st- struggling with Barcelona's pressing. They were pressing very high up the pitch. Uh, Fermin Lopez hit the post from a chance that that came from the ball being won on the edge of the, the Real Madrid box. I think the idea from Real Madrid was to be compact and get bodies in front of goal to stop Barca from playing through them. But it was sort of counterproductive because of the way that Real Madrid were unable to get a grip of things themselves because, to my eye, it just seemed like there wasn't much space. So when the ball was turned over, eventually, and Real Madrid um, won it, there was there was no real outlet. It resulted in them kind of just hoofing balls forward to a front two of Vinicius and, and Rodrigo. The, the, the midfield was being bypassed a lot. And I just thought Barcelona were a lot sharper and it took Real Madrid a while to get a, fo- a foothold in this match. But then once you get to 60 minutes, 70 minutes, Ancelotti makes two or three smart changes and the dynamic of the of the match sort of shifts. Yeah, it, it shifts in part because of those changes. I think Ancelotti had some good moments throughout this match tactically. But really, it shifts because of Jude Bellingham, which feels like the story in global soccer right now, at least on the club side. Like this, this goal that he scores in the 68th minute is completely against the run of play. He picks up the ball well well outside the box while Real Madrid are in possession, hits it with his right foot, scores. It is an absolute banger. It's one of the better goals of the weekend. It comes from nothing. Like Real Madrid had done nothing in the attack in this game other than Graham. You pointed this out, some some long balls over the top in transition. They were really looking for Vinny Jr. in that space outside of Ronald Araujo and inside of Jao Cancelo. Um, J-Wow, my bad. It's been a while since we talked <laughs> about <you>. J-Wow. <laughs> um, they were looking for that long ball over the top, but in possession... Until Hoserlu comes on, they don't have somebody who can really hold up the ball and bring others into the game. And so that just never happened for Real Madrid. But it, it really is, and Graham, you said this too, this was the Real Madrid thing. Like, they did not play particularly well. They're coming into this game with a healthier squad than Barcelona, with a squad that's been in better form for at least chunks of this year than Barcelona, and they still have almost nothing going. Like, they created nothing in the first half of this game, and almost nothing leading into that banger from Jude Bellingham. Like, they just pulled this game out of thin air and got to three points, which is absolutely massive for them in terms of their title hopes. I do want to give credit to Ancelotti for one thing, and Graham, I think you're right to point out that sort of Real Madrid's desire to get numbers back against the ball made it more difficult for them in the attack. Soccer's a game of trade-offs, right? And so in this game, I think Ancelotti chose the path that said, hey, we are going to try to be more defensive and try to limit Barcelona's chances. And they didn't fully succeed with that, but they did have some success. Barcelona weren't creating, you know, golden chance after golden chance in this game. And I thought the defensive approach from Real Madrid, if not 100% effective, was at least interesting. So in possession, they're in this 4-4-2 diamond shape that sometimes looks like a 4-2-2, depending on where Bellingham and Valverde are sort of in that attacking midfield line. They're in the same shape that they've used for the vast majority this season. That's the nuts and bolts of it. But defensively, they shift into a 5-3-2, which is not the defensive shape we see from Real Madrid every single match. Not that we've never seen it, but they would bring Valverde back and play him as the right wing back and tuck Danny Carvajal inside as the right-sided center back. And then they would drop Jude Bellingham back from the number 10 spot over to the left side of central midfield. So they were rocking with some, not mind-bending kind of defensive rotations, but they were moving players around defensively. Why? Well, to try to match up with Barcelona, because Barcelona are possessing with five across the front line, right? That's the, that's the thing. That's what the elite possession heavy teams do in world soccer right now. Everybody attacks with the front five. Barcelona do that every single game under Xavi. Real Madrid know this, and so they decided to go basically man for man in the back line. And they didn't have 100% success again, but that was enough, I thought, to put Barcelona off parts of their game at times. And I thought it was a good example of some of the work that Ancelotti does do, even though others, and, and myself I'll put in this category at times, often label him as just sort of a vibes guy. That is a lot of it, especially in possession. But defensively, there was some real intent here from Real Madrid. Yeah, can we just do a, another quick beat on, on Jude Bellingham? Because Joe, I know you've already said it's like the story in world soccer at the moment. But I, I can't quite believe what's happening right now. This feels like the best start to a career at any elite level yes. club yes. ever. He's got 12 goals in 13 games. Not only that, a number, a good number of those goals, like five or six, have been either stoppage time winners or just winners. Like in this game, he scores two goals that if he doesn't score those two goals, stating the obvious, Real Madrid lose this game. 
He has had such an impact. And I, I just don't know what else there is to say about him at the moment. Now, this run can't last forever. It just can't, right? For a central midfielder, maybe if he's a Cristiano Ronaldo type. And I think there is an element of we are seeing expectations for central midfielders like Bellingham change in the same way that Ronaldo changed expectations for wide players. And Messi did that as well. I do think there might be an element of that. But at the same time, I do think we're seeing the emergence of a player who will be seen as one of the best in the world for the next five to 10 years or, or, or whatever. And there is a, an, an irony. I don't know if irony is the right word, but this week, of course, is the, is the Ballon d'Or. And by all accounts, Lionel Messi is going to win his eighth Ballon d'Or record um, for essentially winning. I presume it's for winning the World Cup and not for winning the League's Cup with Inter-Miami. But, you know, well, you, you never know. You never know how players have, have, have voted. But it really feels like Jude Bellingham is the best player in the world right now at Real Madrid. And the, the most confusing thing about this match is this will be remembered as the Bellingham Classical. But I don't know if he had a good game. And I know that might seem ridiculous when you're talking about a guy who single-handedly won the biggest fixture in European club soccer. But I thought Gavi really stuck with him for yeah. most of the match and limited Bellingham's influence. And, and Real Madrid, they struggled to get in between the lines, especially in the first half. And they did very little to get Bellingham running from deep. And I've already kind of referenced this. The changes that Ancelotti made, I think the Hosselu one is crucial for Bellingham. So he comes on in the second half. And I made this point a couple of weeks ago, but... In my opinion, Real Madrid have a better balance with Hosselu as one of the front two. Rather than going for Vinicius and Rodrigo, you have that focal point with Hosselu. Yes, he's limited as a player, but I think you get more out of Vinicius and, and Bellingham and even Fede Valverde as well. And when he came on, it did a couple things. So it pushed Carvajal higher up because they needed to get the service into Hosselu. So that frees up the defence on the ball a bit more where they have that outlet. And then the other thing is it gives Bellingham space where the Barca defence is pushed back a little bit. And you see that from where he scores the equaliser from. Now, OK, it's an absolute laser and I'm not sure Barcelona can legislate for, for, for that fully. But I think that was the first time in the whole match that the space had, had opened up. So even... In a match where I don't think Bellingham, Bellingham had a great influence on the contest, he still finds a way to make the difference. And that is just incredible. Joe, can I ask you, why is Bellingham so good right now? Not just because of his individual talent, but how is this team set up for him to succeed at this point? Because I have to wonder, if, like, obviously, if he went to somewhere like Manchester United instead, he'd be ruined and probably have half a goal this season rather than... <laughs> be where he is at this point is is it just like the Benzema absence is, is making it more possible for him to go forward and have these opportunities what is it about this Madrid team that is really setting him up for success that's a big part of it Ryan is Real Madrid lost a massive goal scoring contributor over the offseason with Benzema going to Saudi Arabia they don't have a spot not just in terms of well we need somebody who's going to score 15-20 goals in a season but they have a spot tactically of somebody who can go and arrive in the box and, and be Either, I mean, we've seen Jude Bellingham be the, the first runner in the box or the second accent runner, the third accent runner, whatever it is, right? He can crash the box and pick up those spots. And he's picking up a lot of the central attacking spaces because he's playing oftentimes as a number 10 in that 4-4-2 diamond or shifted into the left half space a little bit, right? And we saw that some in this game. He's picking up, though, a lot of those spaces in the middle of the field where he can be the one either running the show or benefiting from the other players in those central spaces like a number nine would. I mean, we've seen him play as a number nine this season, right? That's not his best position. You want him to be able to be maybe a half beat behind where the game is being played to then go and read the space and fill it. But we're seeing, number one, Bellingham show off his elite variety of skills. He's physical, he's technical, he has a great understanding of space, can pick a pass, can clearly find a shot, can find the space. He, he is a complete midfielder. He's either a number eight, sort of a box-to-box -box player, or clearly he can play higher. And Real Madrid are just a high-functioning team. The amount of talent in this group takes so much attention away from the opposing defense that when, yeah, sure, Jude Bellingham is now the number one guy, but at the start of the season, you know, you're worried about four other players too. And now we just see Gavi go and, and man-mark Jude Bellingham for large stretches of this game, heat-sicking missile versus unstoppable force right now. And Bellingham basically cannot be stopped, regardless of what Barcelona threw at him. This is the perfect team for him. He will drop off, and Graham, you said it, like that that's coming. I don't know when it's coming, but it's coming, and we all know it inside. Jude Bellingham knows it inside, right? No player will keep up this scoring streak for so long. Messi's the closest, and, and he's not even going to do that anymore either, right? Bellingham's not going to keep up this momentum, but he is still going to be an elite contributor in so many ways in this Real Madrid team.
Yeah, and the way that he scores the two goals in this game show the, yes. the different types yes. of runs that he's making. Joe, you're, you're you're saying like he can hang back, he can make that second run in, run in behind. His first goal is, as I say, a laser into the top corner from distance. So he can play with a defence in front of him. And then the second goal is him. Yes, it's a little bit fortunate the way that so the deflection fortunate. falls into his. <laughs> but like, and this is maybe an intangible thing, just like great players get the the rub of the green yes. in those moments. Yeah. Like Chris Ronaldo used to get those moments all the time. And I guess it's, you know, to your point, Joe, taking up those positions over and over again, maybe he, I don't, this is kind of hypothetical, but maybe he had made that run, you know, five minutes earlier. Yeah. We don't really talk about it because it doesn't get the deflection that doesn't reach him, but we talk about the one that does reach him. He's, he's just a... He's such a, a, a varied player in terms of what he he offers. Like he's an absolute giant as well. Is the other thing. Like he's brilliantly technically able. He's a natural leader for a team like Real Madrid. He's gone in there and he's he's the leader in that dressing room now. But he is physically so imposing. That was the thing when I when I saw him at Hamden. I came away from that game going, he's he's special. He's he's completely different to anyone on that pitch. And that's an England team with world class players in it. He is so physically imposing and Barcelona like couldn't stop him from having the impact that you know the ultimate impact on this game despite the fact as joe mentions they just stuck gavi on him for the full 90 minutes uh graham so real madrid finished this uh weekend on top of la liga barcelona in fourth atletico madrid, atletico madrid leapfrogged them into third place with their 2-1 home win over alaves what is the talent gap between these two sides in your opinion at the moment obviously barcelona weakened in this team they didn't have rafinha or Lewandowski starting etc and so on do you, as the season goes on, is there a significant talent gap between these sides? No, I don't think so at all. I think once you add Lewandowski in, he obviously comes off the bench in in, in this game. Um, he's not fully fit. Once he gets up to match sharpness again, I think he'll make a difference for Barcelona just having that that focal point because they start with a front two of uh, Jwau Felix and, and Ferran Torres in this game. Both good players, but maybe not the focal point that Barcelona needed. And then Pedri is the other one who's missing from from, from this team. And I think once you get those two players in, there's not really much of a, a, a gap in terms of talent at all. I do think there are questions over, and, and Gundogan made some interesting comments after the match, where I think there's some questions over, I don't know, I don't want to come across all Roy Keane here, but like the character of the group. So Gundogan openly after the game said he was surprised by the lack of anger in the Barcelona dressing room. Mm. Now, I don't know whether that really matters. I've not been in that situation. I'm not I'm not an elite level athlete. But the fact that Gundogan, who's come from Man City, the most dominant team in Europe right now, is making that point and feels it's worthwhile to air that point, I guess is, is notable of sorts. So it still feels like Barcelona are a bit of a work in progress. And, and Real Madrid are a work in progress as well, but very quickly they seem to have accelerated to a point where they have maybe surpassed Barcelona, whereas you wouldn't have said that last season. Indeed. Uh, Joe, this game, by the way, at Montjuic Stadium uh, on top of a mountain, I believe you need a Sherpa or two to get up there for match days. Um, it looks terrific on TV. Uh, they had those panning shots uh, before the game where it's in the sunshine. It looks like absolutely idyllic. But is it just me, Joe? Looking at the TV production, does it look like a bit overexposed and like the actual picture compared to like Premier League like productions? Yeah, it didn't look very good on ESPN. I'm, I don't know if it's ESPN's fault. I don't know whether it was in like 720 instead of 1080. But when I had that side by side with the Premier League game, I was like, this doesn't look as good. I don't know whether it was the stadium and the shadows and the production. Did, is it just me? No, I don't think it's just you. I didn't notice it explicitly in this game. But I, w- I was actually just talking with some folks about this the other day about sort of how the Premier League has become the biggest and best league in the world. And I think the two most obvious factors are money and the English language. But if you take a couple of tiers underneath that, uh, I think the quality of their broadcasts and and technically how they have tuned them, the exposure, the colors, all of those things, the contrast. If you go and watch a Premier League game, even someone who's not a soccer fan, there was something aesthetic about how it looks. Other leagues, I think the Bundesliga does a good job of this as well. I don't think La Liga, Liga, MLS does a terrible job of this, even though the broadcast quality is better hey, now than hey, it's been. Hey, no, Apple, no. <laughs> I was wondering why is why did that get a note for Ryan? <laughs> like the Premier League does that, I I truly think better than anybody else, and it's not that hard to do. If everybody else would just do it, like you're gonna get 001 percent closer. But yeah, uh, it is a it is an issue for a number of different soccer properties. It may not be hard to do, Joe, but it's not quite expensive to do. Like I don't know, Graham. I'm not a TV and... production guy. You, you, it probably is really expensive, and that's probably why no one else does it. Um, yeah. All right, Graham, just spoiled my whole thing. One more beat, because then we got to take a break. One more beat on, on Barcelona. 
Yeah. I am I am very sad that man me coming out hot. I'm sad that we don't see more La Masia influence on the first team because Fermin Lopez, we talked about him after the Champions League most recent recent match day. He's got a bit of a love affair with the woodwork going on at the moment. He starts in this game and he's really good. Like Barcelona have so much young talent. The fact that they've leaned away from that over the years and towards um going broke. I think is a, a really poor decision that they've made over the last decade or however long it's been now. Yeah. Lopez is is a very, very good player. Xavi's talking about how like he could have a very long career at Barcelona. This guy's legit, and Barcelona have more of these players. They've just chosen to go down other paths, and I think that is unfortunate for them. It is indeed, Jeb. Well, speaking of teams who have traditionally a good youth product <laughs> but have uh, bought loads of players instead after the break, Manchester United's lost to Man City back shortly. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Total Soccer Show, welcome back to our weekend review. We go now to the Manchester Derby. Man United nil, Man City 3. Man City cruising this one. Uh, Man United still looking a little troubled. Couldn't quite paper over the cracks this past weekend. Uh, Erling Haaland, I know, right? But they've managed it in the last few games, Graham. A back uh, two of Johnny Evans and Harry Maguire couldn't keep out the best team in Europe. More of a canyon than a crack, now that we think about it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. There's no paper thick enough for those canyons now, Joe. Erling Haaland with two goals, one from the spot, and uh, Phil Foden tapping one in late on. A lovely stat from TNT, Graham. Man United have now lost as many Premier League games at Old Trafford since Sir Alex Ferguson retired, as they did during his entire 26 years at the club. There's a, it just seems like every week there's a new stat like that. Uh, they just keep on giving Man United <laughs> at this point. Uh, Eric Ten Hag says uh, that the team are on the way up, that the defenders performed very well. Graham, is that mm. how you saw it? No, not quite. And I've actually I've written a piece on Ten Hag and some of his comments that will be coming out tomorrow. I thought this was a complete humiliation from Manchester United. Not unexpected, of course. But nonetheless, a, a humiliation for Manchester United on, on, on Derby Day and a show of strength for City, especially in the second half when Ten Hag's changes, I thought, actually worked against his own team. A little bit more on that later. But yeah, City, were, were they were also the stronger team in the first half. But United had a couple opportunities. There were elements of volleyball at times where United were going um, long to bypass the City midfield entirely. And uh, my uh, adult son, Scott McTominay, had a, an excellent shot saved from, from that came from that method. And Hoyland had a couple runs in behind and there was another uh, McTominay carry and then he made the wrong choice with the shot. Um, he should have played the pass instead. But there were, there, were, there were moments where it felt like Manchester United were a threat, at least in the first half. Even though Manchester City were, the, were controlling and, and had the better opportunities. Um, the final 20 minutes of the first half was City really pegging back United and, and settling into their, their patterns. But even at the end of the first half, there were a couple of direct attacks. Then Ten Hag started making changes at halftime. And look, I don't know how I don't know how relevant this is because Manchester City probably would have won the game, almost certainly would have won the game anyway. But in the moment, those changes were confusing to me. So Mason Mount comes on for, for Amrabat which meant McTominay went back to number six, where he was unable to affect the game in any way. I'm going to say my piece on Scott McTominay again, again right? And yes, Or people can I'm... go read it on Twitter as well, if, if they'd <laughs> yeah. like to see Graham arguing with Manchester United fans. No, I feel like, yeah, I was at war with Manchester United <laughs> fans, all of Taylor's burner accounts last night. But I'm going to say my bit on Scott <laughs> McTominay, right? And obviously I am invested in him doing well. But I, I just can't understand how Ten Hag thought that would work. How much evidence does he need that Scott McTominay isn't that player? He's not He's not a number six. He doesn't have the technical ability. He doesn't have the defensive instincts. As an attack-minded sort of Fellaini type, 
I think he's useful. And we've seen that this season, not just for Scotland, for Manchester United. He is Manchester United's top scorer in the Premier League this season, which, of course, says something about Manchester United as well, that that is the case. But in the first half, where he was making those late runs and was allowed to carry the ball and, as I say, be a bit of a Fellaini type, he, I thought him and Hoyland were the two most dangerous players for Manchester United on the pitch. Um, and then I get on my timeline uh, and people are singling him out as the problem. And yeah. I'd, I ran over. Don't worry, Scott. Steve Clark yeah. still understands you. I still understand you. But yeah, this I know this was always going to be a difficult match for Manchester United, but it is in these match where these matches where things like identity and a game plan matter, <laughs> and you can lose these matches and still put across your ideas and what you want your team to be at the moment. And I know they've got injuries, and I know there's the Glazer situation and there are other distractions. But at the moment, I have no idea what Ten Hag wants this team to be, and I don't think he knows either. That midfield is just a complete mess. Yeah. Well, let's expand on that, Joe, because the, the idea of the identity and the philosophy and what this team is supposed to be under Eric Ten Hag. Why at this stage is it not clearer? Why do we not know what Eric Ten Hag is doing? It seems like he was making strides last season a little bit and maybe has even taken a few steps back at this point. No structure, no identity. How, how is this team even different to what Solskjaer was doing is what I put to you, Joe, in terms of maybe not in terms of the personnel. It's not. It's the same. And that's, right. sorry to jump in, Joe, that is why I don't think, I'm going to defend Ten Hag a little bit here, I don't think sacking him solves anything, because that's nope. the point we're getting to now. The, we're now getting to this, the point in the cycle with Manchester United where there's talk about, oh, well, who could be the next person? This has happened to Louis van Gaal, Jose Mourinho, Oleg and Solskjaer, and now it's happening to Ten Hag, where they enjoy a little bit of success, they get Manchester United to a point, and then the, when it, you feel like they're taking the next step, it completely collapses. So at what point do you accept there are deeper issues there? Sorry, Joe, I jumped yeah. on your toes there. No, that, that's completely fair, Graham, and I agree with every single word you just said. I've been banging this drum all season long. The Manchester United squad is is not good relative to where you would expect Manchester United to be and relative to where the other actual contenders in the Premier League are. I wrote this down in the doc, and I'm a little bit irritated that no one's given me credit for it. I wrote down before the game started, 3-0 win to Manchester City from the moment I saw the lineup sheets. Just go through and read the names. Like, if you read the names, there is no doubt about how this game is going to go. And so we're talking about the underlying issues. Well, the, the biggest underlying issue is that the players aren't good enough. Like, the players are not good enough for Manchester United to reliably compete against a team like Manchester City, who have probably more talent than any other team in the world right now and have had for the last several years. Manchester United are multiple tiers away from where Manchester City are, and it doesn't take a genius to figure that out. Now, there are tactical things that are different. And Eric Ten Hag is clearly trying to implement some really detailed build-up. He's trying to use Andre Onana in some very clever ways in terms of how they build from the back and how they go and exploit space between the lines. There are differences there, and I think we've seen some good ideas from Ten Hag over time. That being said, I do not think his ideas in this game were good. You go out, and, and defensively, they're in more of a flat 4-4-2. They're Superman-oriented in midfield. You've got Christian Eriksen running around trying to deal with Bernardo Silva, which didn't work especially well. In possession, they're building out of one shape and, and moving into a 4-4-2 diamond, you know, which is fine in the first half. You know, teams shift between shapes in different phases, but just you go through and, and again, you look at the personnel that are on the field, and it's it's impossible for me to view any reality where Manchester United are favored or can consistently or reliably be counted on to win this game. It just doesn't happen. And so in some ways, I feel for Ten Hag, right? Because he's in a tough spot. As a manager, his job was to come into this Manchester United team, yes, to make them better, but also, and we can't separate this, there's this philosophical element to it, to give them an identity, to give them a way of playing. We've talked about it. Clubs, especially a club like Manchester United, of their stature, maybe the biggest club in the world historically, they want to have an identity. They want to have something that, that people can go and point to and say, hey, that's us, right? Beyond just the quality of their players, Eric Ten Hag is brought in to create that, right? Because that hasn't been a part of this club, Graham, you just spoke to that. Ten Hag is brought in to create that. The problem is he doesn't have the players to actually go and do what a Manchester City does. He doesn't have the players to go and do what some of these other clubs do, right? And so unless you are, and maybe Postacoglu is sort of the counter-argument to this, but unless maybe you're Ange Postacoglu, who seems to be having ridiculous success with Tottenham right now, that's not going to happen. So Ten Hag is faced with the choice of, well, do I toss all this in the garbage and go and play a low block 4-4-2, try to absorb and hit on the break, which I think is inarguably the best way that Manchester United could have approached this game if this is the only game that matters. But it's not, right? He has a face to save. He has new ownership potentially to impress. There are so many other considerations here. I don't think Ten Hag did well in this game. I don't think he's done a very good job with Manchester United at all, honestly. But he is in a tough spot because of the lack of player quality, the ownership, all these other issues that we've already talked about. Manchester United, not good. Man City, very, very good. 
<laughs> yeah, I, I would push back on a couple points, Joe. I, I think last season, Ten Hag did, did a very good job. They achieved ahead of schedule, finishing thirds, winning a trophy. They made the FA Cup final as well. Is yes. That, they did. So they made two two finals, finished third. That was much better than I was expecting last season. But we we spoke about this last year. Um, to achieve that, Ten Hag made a lot of compromises. And I think that is the issue that he is now experiencing is the compromises have started to run away from him. So when he comes into that Manchester United team, one of the first things that he, uh, one of the first players that he targets is Frankie de Jong because he wants a ball carrier in central midfield. Manchester United famously don't get Frankie de Jong. So as the, as a compromise, they go and get someone completely different who plays that role very differently. They go and get Casemiro, right? Now, if, if you make a compromise on one player, then maybe you can get away with that. Maybe you can still play your style of play and adapt to that one player. But Manchester United keep making compromises. They keep getting further and further away from where Ten Hag wants to be. So, for, for example, this summer, Casemiro clearly, it looks like the legs have gone from Casemiro a little bit. So they go and get Sofian Amrabat. Now they've got to fit in two very different central midfielders to Frankie de Jong. And that, as I say, it keeps it's, it's running away from Ten Hag. It feels like he needs to roll it back in some way. But all of a sudden, he's got this squad of players that he's assembled and it feels like he has assembled them. He's had a lot of power at Manchester United to pick these players, which is why they keep going back to the area divisie. And it feels like he now doesn't know how to uh, impose a style that he knows well. So yeah. I think that's one of the issues that's, that's, that, that he's experiencing. And, and to be honest, this is my last beat on Manchester United because we talk about them so much and the issues are the same, right? So Graham, I'm wondering, if, or in Ryan as well, like, can we, the three of us, come up very quickly with the list of things that are wrong with Manchester United? And until those things change... Like nothing, like, yes, they might win a game here. Yeah, maybe they make it into the, the next round of the Champions League, but nothing meaningful is going to have changed about this club. Ryan, do you have a suggestion for the list? So I, was, I speak to my father-in-law, who's a Man United fan, every weekend, basically, about this. And he says, uh, we need this manager. We need to get rid of this player. I'm like, no, none of that matters. You know, a new manager, you get Pep yeah. Guardiola tomorrow. It wouldn't make a difference. So what, so what you matters? You need to change. Then? It's the identity and it's the culture and it's the philosophy coming from the top. Well, yeah, I it's think the top. It's, yeah, it's, yeah it, it's the whole culture that trickles down at the club needs an entire change. They need an identity. They need a vision. They need something like what Man City has. And until they have that, they're just going to keep changing these parts in and out. Like Graham says, it's going to it's a, a, a horse is a camel designed by a committee that they just bring in all these <laughs> different parts. And it it's just not, it's never going to be right. I, that's what I contend. So yeah. I, I think, Joe, the best chance Man United have of real change at the moment is maybe Jim Ratcliffe coming in and changing the sporting side of things a bit. Otherwise, I, I don't think I think they're stuck in a perpetual uh, mess. I mostly agree with that. My my counterpoint, sort of an example of a club that I think has had success in spite of their uh, ownership and club philosophy or lack thereof, is Barcelona. They win La Liga last year. They're still very much in contention to go far in the Champions League and in La Liga this year. I, I'm not I'm not necessarily disagreeing with you because I agree with what you've just said. I I think you're going to be a healthier and more sustainably successful club when you have that from the top down. But you think about the amount of money that's in this game. It is not impossible to succeed in spite of that. My counterpoint to Barcelona, Joe, is it's easier to be successful in La Liga than it is yes, in the Premier League. 100%. Last season, Barcelona still crash out in the group stages of the Champions League, yep. um, which kind of suggests that maybe that squad wasn't, in the grand scheme of things, a grand scheme of things wasn't all that good. Um, there are always going to be rare cases of managers who go in and um, are able to completely take a grip of a club. Jurgen Klopp yeah. did it with Liverpoul. Postacoglu's done it with Spurs. But finding those managers is so rare and so yes. difficult. And I think Manchester United were counting on Ten Hag being that manager for them. And now it's turning out that maybe he doesn't have that influence. That's different from saying he's a bad manager. I still think Ten Hag is a good manager. I'm not willing to put, I'm not willing to throw out all the evidence that we have on the basis of, of, of a very bad start to the season. And it has been very bad. But I agree with Ryan. You look at the, the issues at Manchester United and players and managers are like bottom of the list. For me, it's Glazers and just their lack of interest trickles all the way through the club. You look at Arsenal, right? Arsenal lost 12 games in a row to Manchester City. But on a lot of those games, under Arteta, you could see what they were trying to do. They were they had an identity. They were working towards something. And that's why Arteta gets that time. And I think that comes from the fact that people like Josh Kroenke and Edu and Arteta, obviously, they actually care about the club. Colorado Rapids fans, go ahead and mute this. Graham, can <laughs> 
well, Stan Kroenke, I think, is maybe the one to blame for the, the Colorado Rapids. But I, I went and read Arsenal fans on this. They seem to quite like Josh Kroenke. He seems to have made a difference. And I think it's because he cares about the soccer. <clears throat> Who in the Glazers cares about the soccer? They care about making money out of Manchester United. So the list is like Glazers, front office needs to be a meaningful front office because even though there is a front office, it feels like Ten Hag has dictated everything since he's, he's coming and that puts a lot of pressure on him. Yeah, it needs a complete restructure. And I agree with Ryan, yeah. maybe Jim maybe Jim Ratcliffe isn't the solution to all this, but it feels like they need to roll the dice and roll the dice on something because this situation isn't isn't working for anyone. For me, until this group of players changes, nothing is going to change for Manchester United. I, I, that's that is the nuts and bolts. However, you get there, and ideally you get there working from the top down to establish sustainable processes that can lead you mm -hmm. to success. But in, until we hit a transfer window or two or four or six transfer windows. And Manchester United squad looks less like a squad that has Amrabat and Christian Eriksen at the base of your midfield to start a game with Scott McTominay as the number 10. Like, until that's not the case anymore, Manchester United are not but going to progress in any meaningful kind of way. You can get there through recruitment, and that is the most important thing that needs to change. You go out there and you sign Casemiro. He's a dangerous player last season. Clearly, he's not in the plans nearly as much this year. Clearly, age is getting to him. There's so many of those issues related to the, the player side. However, you fix those things and overhaul the recruitment department and the analysis department and the actual on-field product for this team until those things happen. And ideally, they're coupled with other big picture changes as well. But until those things happen, it, nothing's going to change for this club. I'm wary we're going very, very long on Manchester United here and have barely mentioned Manchester City, who actually, yeah. like, they did this thing where they, like, passed the ball and, like, played a good game of football. That Yeah. But, um... Manchester United, you're right, Joe. This this group of players maybe isn't able, isn't good enough to be successful for Manchester United. But like that's the point that that's the argument people have made about Manchester United for the last ten years. And Ten Hag has changed like half of this squad. I think fifteen players have left this squad since he's come in. He signed eleven or twelve players, so there has been a high degree of turnover. And that's agreed. Where I then link that to my point about the Glazers in the front office. If you yeah. keep repeating this cycle of changing the manager, changing the squad, and you still end up in a situation where the manager's not good enough and the squad isn't good, good enough, you need to look at the people who are making those decisions and signing those players. And that's where the front office and the ownership comes in. Yeah, definitely. There's simply something rotten behind the scenes that's going on at Man United, and we'll find out, I'm sure, in due course. The situation like the Jadon Sancho situation, I'm sure there's, there's stuff happening behind the scenes we're not aware of. But fundamentally, this team has been run by an accountant since post, in the post-Fergie years. And you don't want an accountant to be running the team or someone who's more interested in marketing and sponsorships. So, uh, Edward Wood is who I'm referring to there. So, you know, you need a, 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 the, the kind of people that City have had at the top. Anyway, we've, we've gone far too long on Man United. quite right. City were very good, benefiting from Haaland being left alone at the far post for the second goal and Johnny Evans doing was incredible ball watching on the uh... third goal as well. Johnny Evans and that third goal, I, 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 watch that again if you see it. It's, it's amazing. Playing everyone on side and then reacting about five seconds too late anyway uh let's take a quick break when we come back more of the premier league we're going to go around the houses in europe and of course take a look at those mls playoffs back shortly looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone luckily with 24 7 us-based live customer service from discover everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime day or night yep you heard that right you can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Total Soccer Show weekend review. Chelsea nil, Brentford 2. Do the stat. Oh you want to hear the stat? Joe wants to hear the stat, everybody. <clears throat> Here we go. Here we go. <clears throat> In the last seven months, Brentford have won more Premier League games at Stamford Bridge than Chelsea. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Chelsea booed <laughs> off the two? field after this. Or three. Yeah. <laughs> two. two. I think wow. it's two, right? So no, it has won... to be two. 
Oh, I, maybe it's because they've won their third game in a row <laughs> against Chelsea at Stamford Bridge, but that wouldn't be with, been within the seven months. Yeah, they possible. couldn't have three within seven months. Yeah, it doesn't matter. It's hilarious. Stamford, yeah, it's hilarious. They've won their last three at Stamford Bridge, but that, that stat really does take the biscuit. Yeah, Chelsea very wasteful in this one. Brentford, excellent though. Um, aside from the stat, Graham, anything else to take from this game? Just that this was the sort of performance we've seen countless times from Chelsea in 2023, where they had lots of the ball, created opportunities, and actually didn't play badly in the broad sense of it. Mm. However, they spurned those opportunities and struggled to break down Brentford. And of course, Brentford are arguably the best counter-attacking team in the league. So uh, they're sort of Chelsea's kryptonite. And as you say, they've, they've won their last uh, three at Stamford Bridge and two in the last seven months. So. I'm going to drop a take. I, I agree with a lot of what Graham said. I didn't catch this full game, but I did see bits and pieces. My take is that Chelsea are a bit unlucky right now. And I, I know I just kind of made fun of their whole situation because let's be honest, it's really funny. But yep. I my prediction is that they're going to finish above Manchester United by the time this whole season is over. That's not like a particularly hot take. I don't know that that qualifies for take it or leave it level. They're only, what, three points back right now, something along those lines. But I think Chelsea are going to finish maybe even well above Manchester United by the time this whole season's over. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I don't I don't think that's outrageous, Joe. And I think if you contrast the two, even though Chelsea lose here at home to Brentford on talent level, a team they should be beating, um, you can kind of see what Pochettino is trying to do. There is a bit of an identity to Chelsea this season. Um, I still think they have a real deficiency in the centre-forward position. I had high hopes for Nicholas Jackson, but he is still very, very raw. And his movement was really poor throughout this match. There was a section on Match of the Day from um, Alan Shearer that Joe would have liked because he was talking about how prolific strikers take up more good positions than non-prolific strikers. And that's the difference be between them. Um, and of course, Alan Shearer would know a lot about this subject. And he highlighted a number of attacking moments where Jackson, he just wasn't taking up good positions. He wasn't making runs, just way too static from, from him. And it was a clip where Cole Palmer was telling him to move and open up space with runs and Palmer's kind of throwing his arms around in exasperation. And that's a player who's been coached by Pep Guardiola, who kind of relies and counts on that sort of movement movement ahead of him. And Jackson wasn't really giving him any of that. So yeah, I think Jackson, I'm not writing him off entirely, but it feels like he needs quite a bit of coaching to fulfill his potential. Indeed. And we had in this game, something I do love, a keeper going up at the end for a corner in a league game, which we had in the Classico as well, actually. Uh, but obviously it turned out pretty badly for Chelsea in this instance, I, because as you mentioned, counter-attacking. Brentford, yeah. good. I also love that Neil Mopey almost messed the whole thing up. We are like, shoot, shoot. It's an open goal. Shoot. He never <laughs> shoots at any point. And he is, Everton fans will tell you that he is a striker allergic to shooting or scoring goals. And uh, and Robert Sanchez kind of prods the ball to Sambuemo, right? Who puts yeah. that in the back of the net. And he finally finishes it off. But for a moment, it felt like uh, Neil Mopey was going to have the, the miss of the season attached to his name. Indeed. Arsenal 5, Sheffield United nil. Eddie Nketiah with his first Premier League hat-trick. A jolly good one it was as well. Sheffield United remaining rock bottom of the league, Graham. Also wearing the same colour kits as Arsenal in this game. as They were like white and red as opposed to red and white. This one I, I couldn't watch very easily. Yeah, maybe that's the reason they lost 5-0. It feels like Paul Heckingbottom needs some uh, some explanation for what is going on. I believe now, numerically, statistically, this is the worst start to a Premier League season by, by any team. They've got one point. They've conceded something like 20 goals, scored six. So it's not ideal. I very much expect Sheffield United to go straight back down. But you mentioned the hat-trick from Eddie Nketiah, Ryan. And called it, what did he call it? Lovely? I think that's understating it. This was mm. a this was an incredible hat trick. So the first goal he sets him up with himself up with a lovely touch inside the box. The second goal is pure opportunism, but he lashes it into the top corner. And then the third one is like this long range laser, which you wouldn't really class as a typical Enketia goal, but it was a fantastic hat trick. And there's always this discussion around Enketia about whether he's really good enough for a team. Like Arsenal, he isn't an all-rounder in the way that Gabriel Jesus is, who's out injured again after we praised him on the Champions League review last last week. Um, but as a rotational option who can keep Arsenal fresh and contribute goals in games like home matches against Sheffield United um, and give them a little bit more of an orthodox cutting edge in front of goal, I think he's proven himself over the last 12 months in Ketia. So yeah, he's, he's become an important squad figure for them. Not specifically tied to Enkedia or this game, but Arsenal getting these three points over the weekend, some of the other results around the Premier League. This this season is shaping up to be a really, really strong one in terms of the actual title challenge. You mentioned Tottenham earlier. They're on 26 points, leading the league. Then you got Arsenal in second on 24, Man City in third on 24, just out on a tiebreaker there. Liverpool fourth on 23. 
I mean, I'm not going to go down to Aston Villa, but like you, you have a, a, the makings of a genuine title race, which is something that I, I sort of make a lot of fun of these European leagues for because it feels like there is so, so often not that. Uh, but credit to the Premier League and how the season's unfolding so far. Arsenal, obviously a big part of that. We've got ourselves a race, folks. Well done to the scriptwriters, indeed, yes. Joe. And also, let's uh, let's note, Joe, Bellingham, Kane, Foden, and Ketia all doing pretty well this weekend as well. Nice build-up to Euro. Harry Maguire. Harry Maguire mm. doing Harry Maguire things as well. Yes, all uh, uniformly wonderful there. Uh, Spurs with a 2-1 win at Crystal Palace on Friday to stay top of the league. Liverpool with a 3-0 win over Nottingham Forest. Jota, Nunes, and Salah with the goals there. Matt Turner not covered in glory hey. for Salah's goal, should mm. we say, Joe? Mm. Didn't see it. Going to assume it was not his fault. He Next. Was, he, he long way from goal, let's say mm. that. Uh, I, I love them. I love that Liverpool had something like 75% possession in this game, but all three goals come from quick transition moments. Like, the commitment to clock ball is back, and I'm, I'm, I'm totally here for it. Uh, on a slightly more sincere note... Um, Storyline with this game, Luis Diaz not playing for Liverpool at the moment. His um, parents were, um, it seems like they're kidnapped, reports that they've been kidnapped in Colombia. Um, his, his mother, thankfully, has been released, but his father is still missing. So obviously that is a horrendous situation for Luis Diaz to be in. Players were kind of holding up his shirt after celebrating goals and there was a, a lot of kind of um, warm sentiment towards Luis Diaz, which I think we would all echo. That is, a, yeah, as I say, pretty horrendous situation to be in. Yeah, very difficult circumstances, this win for Liverpool. Nice to see them holding up Diaz's shirt. It was, I think it was after Jota's first goal, they did that. Um, so lots of support. All the best uh, to Diaz and his family at this time. Uh, Bournemouth. Bournemouth? Hmm. I've, I've combined Burnley and Bournemouth, everybody. <laughs> Bournemouth 2, Burnley 1. Uh, first Bournemouth win of the season. Philip Billing with a, a lovely lob in this one, Graham. Um, and yeah. some company unhappy with VAR, etc. Uh, he's he's got a lot to be unhappy with at the moment. I do sympathise in that five and a half minutes to um, check whether a goal should stand. It's a J. Rodriguez equaliser. It was ridiculous. The lines were drawn on in the wrong place and then the right place and fans were singing, this is embarrassing. Um, mm. And I agree. It feels like the, the Premier League does a very bad job of VR. There was an, a, a bad VR decision as well in the, the Wolves-Newcastle game. Um, but nothing was quite as bad as the performance from Burnley in this game of course a huge match at the bottom of the table Bournemouth and Burnley both searching for their first uh, wins Bournemouth get that and and Burnley have just been dreadful this season their their approach isn't working I had high hopes for them coming from the championship where they obviously were excellent last season but both Bournemouth goals came from them um, exploiting Burnley's weakness in possession and specifically their lack of press resistance and Areola admitted this after the match that this was a deliberate plan they'd seen how many mistakes Burnley had made in other matches, coughing up the ball, lack of press resistance. And so they tried to exploit that. Yeah, there's just been so many mistakes this season. And and that's the most confusing thing. I think I said this last week. It feels as if this is a new thing for Burnley. They should be sharp. I know it's a step up from the Championship to the Premier League, but I expected a sharper performance level from them. Yes, we've not seen anything near sharpness at Burnley. I would uh, agree with that, Graham. Uh, Aston Villa 3, Luton 1. A fifth win in six for Aston Villa there. Luton not offering too much in this game. Their first shot came after an hour. Uh, Wolves with a 2-2 draw with Newcastle, Graham, uh, on Saturday afternoon. Yeah, a really entertaining match, and I was impressed by Wolves. We all thought this season was going to be a bleak, a bleak one for them. Uh, Lopetega gets sacked, what's it? four days before the start of the season, kind of wondering where the goals are going to come from. But Gary, Gary O'Neill is doing some really smart work with them. They're unbeaten in five league games. They've beaten City in that run. They've taken points off Villa and now Newcastle. This might have been three points had it not been for another shambolic VR decision where uh, Huang Hee Chan kicks the ground uh, and not the player and Newcastle get a penalty for that. And it became clear on the replay that that had been the case and Gary O'Neill wasn't. Wolves have been on the end of a lot of bad decisions this season. You remember the first game of the season when Onana cleans out someone from a corner, they don't get the penalty, there's an apology from the PGMOL. I think there might be another apology coming on the on the back of this decision. But yeah, the Wolves front three of Huang, Neto and Cunha, they're just so dangerous and mobile and how they run at you and they force you into difficult decisions. Huang was excellent here, scores an excellent goal to make it 2-2. Pedro Neto comes off with an injury, so that's a blow because he's been very good this season. But yeah, Gary O'Neill's doing a, a, a good job, again, in difficult circumstances. 
There we go. And finally, Graham, the Dave Moyes derby, West Ham with a 1-0 loss at home to Everton this weekend, where it was uh, Sean Dyche who prevails. Yay! Yeah, it might have been the Moyes derby, but it was Dyche ball that won the day for Everton. And they do seem to have found something in recent weeks. That's four wins in their last six games in all competitions. Um, some of those wins have been pretty agricultural, to use a British term. And this one was a bit agricultural, to be honest. But having a fit Dominic Calvert-Lewin makes such a big difference to this team because he is the perfect Sean Dyche centre forward. He's got that physicality. He's good in the air. He's basically like a better Ashley Barnes or Chris Chris Woods. And he smashed a shot off the bar in this match as well, so he could have had two. And and often it's just about Everton staying compact and sending the wingers forward to get service into Calvert-Lewin and, and then have Dakuri backing him up. But at least that gives Everton something to build around. It might not be very pretty. It might not be, be very complicated, but it is something. It is Burnley ball, and it has a ceiling on how far it can push Everton up the table. But I am feeling a bit better about them staying up now, which is essentially season on season for them at this current moment. That's the objective is to stay up. Absolutely. So we go now to Germany, where Bayern Munich just about scraped three points this weekend with an 8-0 win over Darmstadt. Uh, Harry Kane with a hat-trick in this one, including a goal from his own half. A beautiful one as well. One of those ones where it hit the back of the net before hitting the yeah. floor. Perfectly placed. Very nice indeed. Kane. Yeah, with... I think... So, sorry, Ryan. I think he might have just earned himself a Netflix documentary series about himself because uh, oh. that's the best. That's probably the best halfway line goal I've seen since Beckham against bumbled in it's yeah. very very good it was indeed perfect trajectory well done harry kane his 12th goals in nine games there mamel Neuer back in goal for the first time since the world cup in this one as well i saw and your it... tweet about him <laughs> break a leg <laughs> yeah i was I, that was one where i was like hovering over the send button saying is this appropriate to break a leg uh, yeah he did consider that but still sent it yeah there you go. That's the way my brain works. Uh, Taylor Rockwell's by Leverkusen with a 2-1 win over Freiburg. Still keeps him at the top. Florian Wirtz with the opening goal, Graham. Um, it was pretty yeah. good. Yeah, it was an absolute... It was a belter in a completely different way to, ha to Harry Kane. He's out by the corner flag. Then he beats two players uh, twice. So he goes back for a second go at, the, <laughs> at one player and then kind of angles a shot into the far corner. It's an incredible goal and Lever Leverkusen keep marching on. They are a serious, serious team this season. I, I don't know if they can keep this pace up for the full season. Have they dropped points at all? Have they won every single game? If they've won every single game, then it's almost a certainty that they can't keep this pace up. But nonetheless, they do look like a very strong team. And I'm hopeful that we get a Bundesliga title race out of that. Looks like we may. We shall see. Uh, over in Italy, uh, Inter Milan had a 1-0 win over Roma. Uh, Marcus Tram with a late goal settling that one. No Dybala, no Pellegrini, no Jose Mourinho for Roma. He got a ban for his naughty behaviour against Monza last weekend. Uh, Romelu Lukaku getting a very bad reception. He was whistled throughout by the Inter home fans. Uh, there was uh, some very unpleasant behaviour, a uh, banner against him, and several fans holding inflatable bananas. Uh, those mm -hmm. Inter fans... Clearly wanting the whole world to know exactly what they are. Uh, not great. Now, it was interesting, Graham. Mourinho, before the game in, in a, uh, a Europa League conference press conference, said he, he was sort of raising the issue of why other players who've transferred between big teams, including between Inter and Roma, don't get the reception, don't get the abuse that Lukaku's been getting. I can think of one reason why he's getting the abuse, but uh, yeah. Yeah. It's not great. I actually had completely missed that, and I was gonna. Um, I saw footage of Inter Ultras buying boxes of and boxes of whistles and handing them out before the match, and they whistled every time he had a touch of the ball, which I thought was, um, you know, mischievous. But uh, yeah, I'm not so inclined to laugh along with anything that they did during this match. Now that I know that sort of thing. Yeah, very poor behaviour indeed. Uh, Napoli with a 2-2 draw at home with Milan. Coming back from 2-0 down did Napoli in this one. Very nice individual goal from Matteo Politano in this one. And uh, Raspadori with a free kick to make it 2-2 as well. Chrissy Pulisic setting up the opener for yes. Olivier, Olivier Giroud in this one. Yes, indeed, Joe. Fun times for Mr. Pulisic. Uh, comeback of the weekend uh, goes to Cagliari. Uh, who got a 4-3 win over Frosinone. Uh, Joe, I don't know if you saw this one. Uh, Cagliari were 3-0 down at home to Frosinone in the 72nd minute, and they won 4-3. Uh, well done. So two of their goals coming in the final well, in, in added time. Um, that is the most dangerous lead in soccer. That's, that's what they say. I thought it was whatever Bayern won by. That's the most dangerous lead in soccer. Just 100-0, <laughs> whatever that was. <laughs> no team had ever gone on to win a Serie A game when going 3-0 down in the final 20 minutes, unsurprisingly. Cagliari uh, breaking that record. Their manager, of course, Claudio Ranieri, knowing a thing or two about 
overturning and uh, getting yeah. good results. Dilly ding, dilly dong. Indeed, indeed. What? <laughs> that's uh, his saying. That's, that's his phrase. His thing. That's his yeah. thing. Yeah, Love ding, dilly dong. Wow. Says it all the time in in, uh, in Sicily, I understand. <laughs> uh, first win of the season for Cagliari. They started the day bottom. Now it's Salernitana who are bottom with uh, Pippo Anzaghi as their manager and Guillermo Ochoa in goal at Salernitana. Fun times. Should we go and have a quick look, Joe, at the MLS Cup playoffs? We're going to go in more detail on Tuesday's show on the feed, but a uh, quick pre-see of the start of the best of three series. Who doesn't love a best of three series? Yeah, there, there have been a lot of goals. I'll be honest. I still don't really know how to feel about this format. I know there are a lot of people that are very clearly not in favor of it, and I, I lean towards that side. But in terms of the firepower, this round has delivered so far. I think these games have been entertaining. I'll run through the list quickly, and then Goss, Taylor, and I will go through this in, in much more detail tomorrow, talking about the games tonight as well, and probably a bit more about the format and, and some other things along the way. The first game of this first round, Philly top New England 3-1. to one. That game was on Saturday. The Union were dominant in this game. The Revs already missing Georgia Petrovic, who moved from New England back to Old England. And then Carles Hill comes out in the first half with an injury. And without those two players, the Revs are not winning any playoff games, most likely. Certainly not making a deep run. Philly took him to task their left side with Kai Wagner. Uh, Jack McGlynn kind of ran this whole show. Philly win that one 3-1. to one. A good win for the Union. LAFC top Vancouver 5-2. to two. That was the other game on Saturday. Uh, lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of set-piece goals. Vancouver coming into the playoffs had allowed more set-piece goals than anybody in Major League Soccer. They allowed 14. They allowed four in this game. Four of LAFC's five goals came off of set-pieces. One of Vancouver's two goals did as well. Just an absurd amount of action on those dead ball moments in this game. If you can't defend set-pieces, you're not likely to make a deep run in the playoffs either. LAFC are a true threat, and they showed that in that match. Then moving over to Sunday's games, the Houston Dynamo topped Real Salt Lake 2-1. to one. I love the goal from Hector Herrera. For the U.S. fans out there, Diego Luna scores a nice goal, also plays a part in the Dynamo scoring as well. Not his, you know, entirely his best game. The Dynamo looked like the better team in this match, if not by you know, the widest of margins in the first half. They spread those margins out in the second half, deserving winners in that one, 2-1. to one. FC Cincinnati topped the New York Red Bulls, who came out of the wild card game on Wednesday. Since he beat uh, New York 3-0 in this match, Alvaro Barreal and Lucho Acosta put on a show just go back and watch the highlights of this game if you haven't already. There are some incredible goals. Lucho Acosta scores from empty net just inside of the Red Bulls' half. Some chaos coming from uh, the New York Red Bulls in this game. Since he were the better team, they take care of business at home. And the last game that's happened so far, St. Louis 1, Sporting Kansas City 4. A reversal, at least you know, in, in large part, of the scorelines that we saw throughout the regular season. St. Louis struggled in this. They, they sort of didn't put together the moments that kept them churning through the regular season and helped them win the West. They couldn't win 50-50s, and they, they didn't seem to have the same intensity. I don't think there were major issues with their tactical setup, to be honest, from Bradley Carnell. Yes, teams know what teams know what is coming from St. Louis. Sporting Kansas City certainly did. Peter Vermees made a couple of tactical changes. Doesn't have all of his personnel at 100% either. But SKC just kind of took St. Louis to task inside of St. Louis's own half, inside their own defensive third. They were up 3-1 at halftime and up 4-1 by the 61st minute, and this game was over. St. Louis, the only away team so far... And the lowest seed, like they're they're going on up against the number one seed. They're the only away team so far to get a win in the first round in this first leg. Uh, St. Louis in a really, really tough spot after a magical regular season. Two quick things on, on that match. I didn't watch it live, but I, st- I did see the highlights and I saw some stuff on social media in, in, in the morning. First of all, I loved uh, Peter Vermees and the Sith Lord. Yes, in Palpatine, the baby. <laughs> yeah, feels like Vermees, I know he's a polarizing figure, but it feels like he has good value for his touchline antics. There's the, the old clip of him, you know, the, F, the FU moment. which Exceedingly is just, giveable is Peter Vermees. Yeah, it's, it's one of the all-time MLS gifts. Um, secondly, on the format, Joe, right? So again, I didn't watch this game Sure. live i have written about the format i knew it was coming but it wasn't quite until the matches happened that i, I realized what the knock-on effect of the format could be so for anyone who doesn't know it's not an aggregate scoreline it is like a, and you can correct me if I, I, I veer away here joe um it's like a basketball series yes where it's you win one match you get you get one you know and it's, it's a best of three series and um, st louis three one down in this game pretty early and just looking at the subs that they made and the players that come off, Edward Leuven um, most notably coming off for them, it kind of feels like they're protecting players then for the second game where they kind of throw in the towel on the first match and, and Sporting KC can run up the score and 
you know they protect themselves for the second second match. I can't think of a format anywhere else in soccer like that. That's not a that's not a soccer thing. That's like a, that's a basketball thing or a, yeah. a traditional American sports thing. It's just a bit unusual. It it is, and I, I'm very curious to hear what Taylor and Goss have to say about it. I, I'm still trying to figure out exactly what I think about this format. Like I said, tons of goals. But the counterpoint to that is, well, not a lot of these goals ended up mattering, right? It's LAFC running up the score. It's Cincinnati adding a third. It's SKC adding a fourth in the second half. Like, those goals were not ultimately relevant to the the actual round, uh, uh, first round, like the best of three series. But, like, the action has been there. And, and the other side of this coin is, well, if you're getting trashed, like if you're Vancouver and you're losing 5-2, to two, or if you're the Red Bulls and you're, you're down 2-0 heading into the final moments of this game, why are you not going for it. Like, there's no difference for you between losing 2-0 and 10-0. Like, the aggregate does not matter whatsoever. Open up the floodgates, go for it, try to get a couple of goals on the board and steal something to get it to penalties. I think even the teams themselves, Graham, are still trying to feel out how exactly they should be navigating this. Uh, Joe, the USL Conference Championship Finals are now set. Uh, Tragically, Orange County SC falling at the sword. Quiet. Phoenix rising this weekend. Quiet down. I was going to come out and say that third <laughs> goal was Matt Turner's fault, and I'll, I'll still say it. Watch the highlights. That one was not great. Uh, but Phoenix rising, get the win at Orange County. A huge result for them. They are one now one win away from the USL Championship final. Uh, they've got to get through Sacramento first, and that's not going to be easy, especially away from home. I'll run through quickly the results here. Sacramento top San Antonio FC, who won this whole darn thing last year. That game was on Friday. Sac win that one 3-1. to one. They book their spot against Phoenix Rising. Phoenix get that 2-1 away win at Orange County. That's back-to-back extra time wins for Phoenix Rising. I'm keeping my heart rate quite high for uh, for that evening. And then you got Charleston Battery beating Birmingham Legion 2-1 in Louisville City, topping Detroit 4 Nil, Detroit have, uh, excuse me, Louisville have been a fixture in the Eastern Conference Finals for, I believe, nine straight seasons. They'll take on Charleston, who have not been there since, if my math is correct, 2015. Some fun games coming up this weekend on Saturday. Indeed, Joe. The USWNT were in action over the weekend, a 3-0 win over Colombia. Yes, yes, they were. Uh, another frustrating lineup from the United States as they're in this interim period. Uh, this is not my... It, it, I'm not sure if it's a joke or not. It's not my witty thing. It feels like the U.S. Are, are just trying to win that Sweden game still. Like, they're just really, really pushing for it. Maybe if they have the same players out on the field, they're going to get that whole job done. It was not an experimental lineup at all. It feels like a total waste of time. But that said, some changes are made in this game. The official young striker plays for Chelsea. Gets a goal in the 56th minute. Jaden Shaw gets a goal off of an Alyssa Thompson assist. That comes in the second half. It is good that we are seeing at least a little bit of these younger players I just don't know why this window wasn't used to give them more of a run out. Like there is literally no downside whatsoever. That's a frustrating thing, but the U.S. get the win, and I guess that's good. I guess so, too. Uh, A couple of quick notes before we leave in the other business section. Ajax Watch, PSV5, Ajax 2, PSV atop of the Eredivisie, Ajax are rock bottom. Who'd have thunk it? Wow. Crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Not great. Ten no. games without a win. Remember last week we said they had Brighton and, and PSV coming up? Yeah, they lost both those games quite convincingly. So things not improving for, for Ajax quickly. Indeed. Uh, some bad news coming out of Liga as well. Marcel's uh, game against Lyon was postponed after the visitors' team bus was attacked on the way to the match. The Lyon bus was hit by rocks on its way to the stadium. Supporters' coaches also came under attack. There were some fairly disturbing images of Lyon coach Fabio Grosso uh, injured from the attack on the bus. Uh, pretty bad look for French soccer, that one. Um, and PSG with a 3-2 win over Brest. 17-year-old Warren Zier Emery didn't make a boob of himself against Brest, Graham. Another great goal. <laughs> I, I knew as soon as you made a point of saying Brest so emphatically that you weren't going to let an opportunity for a cheap pun pass you by. And you didn't let me down. That's what I'm here for, Graham. You're very welcome. Uh, we have Weekend Reviewed. Listener, thank you for joining us. Graham Ruthven, thank you so much for your contributions. As always, my good man. Thank you, Ryan Billy. And Joe Lowry, checking in from the Dakotas. Thank you very much, sir. Dilly dilly, or whatever whatever it was. Dilly dilly <laughs> to all. <laughs> oh, Joe. Thank you very much, listeners, for joining us once again. Patreon.com slash Total Soccer Show for all our bonus content. We'll be back on the feed very shortly. But for now, bye! Slash it.